how do we avoid toxic people? Now, you can Google this. There's dozens of good articles. Obviously, there's dozens and dozens of books. And what you'll notice if you investigate this is they have a lot that they share in common. I'm just drawn from one. It's an article. You can Google Psychology Today, Dr. George Everly. And I'm using it because it sums up well. He gives four types. I'm going to put them on the screen because I think it's helpful to both see and hear. And I'll tell you this. All four types have a common way to all four that they release their toxins into the world. So here's the first one. It's the narcissistic aggressive person. This person is a risk taker. They're very possessive. They're selfish and they're, they feel really entitled. Number two is the frenemy. The frenemy. That's a person who you think is your friend, but they're really not your friend and everything they do for you, really they're doing for themselves. Third type of person, the negative complaining person. Do I really need to explain much about the negative complaining person? They're never happy, it's never enough, and they're passive aggressive. Then finally, the seductive, overly dramatic person. They're charming, they're attractive, they're an attention seeker, they're deeply insecure, they're self-destructive, and then finally, they discard people very easily. You want to avoid these people, they're toxic people, you want to be aware of all that. Now, it is important that when you talk about avoiding toxic people that you look out and you also look in. If I want to detox my body, I have to be careful what I eat and what I drink. I have to look outside of myself, be careful not to let it inside. But that's only half of the equation. I also have to release the toxins that are already inside of my body. And one of the best ways to do that is to exercise. You burn it out. Remember that word burn. You're burning it out of your releasing those toxins. You gotta look out, gotta look in. So let's start with looking out. What do you do when you, when you look out? Well, something that you're gonna read, if you read a lot about this in books or articles, is setting boundaries. There are a whole bunch of boundary books. It started with a New York Times bestseller, setting boundaries in your life, how to get control back of your life. And then so many spinoffs on that. Boundaries in dating, boundaries in marriage, boundaries with your kids. Uh, boundaries for peace. There's a boundaries devotional book. There are so many boundaries. Now, here's a great saying. Anamaya saw it on a street sidewalk somewhere. She sent it to Krista. Krista sent it to me, and it's, I thought, just a really good saying. Listen to this. If you're a giver, remember to learn your limits because takers do not have any. I think that's really good. Boundaries. Boundaries are important. Now we're going to go all the way back to the book of Leviticus. And remember what we said. In some ways, we read it like, this is so strange. It's irrelevant to my life. And maybe it's boring. It talked, the book of Leviticus talks a lot about skin, clothes, and walls. Now I want you to think for a second. What do those three things have in common? Um, on Christmas holidays, during the break, uh, my family, we, we played this game called Linky. And what Linky does is it asks you four questions. You come up with the answers. You look at those four answers and you say, what do these four answers have in common? And you figure out the common link. That's why the name Linky. So what, everybody, the skin, clothing, and walls, what is common? They're all boundaries. They're all boundaries and boundaries are good. Particularly when talking about detoxing your life. You gotta have boundaries. You gotta know your limits. They're so incredibly important. And skin, clothing, and walls, they're all boundaries in our lives. We have guardrails. We have handrails. We have baby gates. We have boundaries. Why? Because they keep us safe. They're so important. Now, I want to read something to you from one of the 
one of the most famous and greatest Jewish biblical scholars of all time. Listen to what he says. Maimonides. All agree that leprosy is a punishment for slander. What? Now he's going to get into how we use our words and our tongue. And what connection is that to our skin, to our clothes, and to the walls of our home? Check this out. All agree that leprosy is a punishment for slander. The disease begins in the walls of our houses. If the sinner repents, the object is attained. If he remains in his disobedience, the disease affects his bed and his house furniture. If he still continues to sin, the leprosy attacks his own garments and then his body. Now, I want you to think about this. In the Bible, there's a story about Moses' sister, Miriam, and she speaks slander. She speaks ill of Moses. And what happens to her? She's struck down with leprosy. Now, let's think about Moses. In that famous scene in Exodus chapters 3 and 4, when God stops Moses at the burning bush, let tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses is like, man, I just can't march back into the most powerful person on the face of the earth, Pharaoh, and say, let my people go. And God says, I give you three signs. He says, take your staff and throw it down. So he does, and it becomes a snake. And he runs from it. Who wouldn't? But God says, go pick it up. He picks it up, becomes a staff again. He says, there's sign number one. Here, I give you a second sign. Water into blood. So God says, I'll turn the water into blood. And then the third sign. God says, Moses, put your hand inside of your robe and then pull it out. When he does, it's white as snow because he has leprosy. Now, he used two of those signs when he goes to see Pharaoh. He used the staff and he used the water into blood, but he never uses the hand. Why would he? (laughs) Uses the hand again and it becomes leprous. You know why? The Jewish sages say this. That wasn't a sign. It was a sign of a punishment a punishment to Moses because he spoke ill of the people because what he said to God was, they'll never believe me. He discredited the people. He discredited the Israelites and he spoke ill of them. He says, they'll never believe me. You ever say that about people? They'll never, they'll never. And he spoke ill of the people and God's saying to Moses, I am punishing you for your careless words. Leprosy is a punishment. And as Maimonides says, when we speak slanderous, it affects everything about us. So skin, clothing, and walls, those are all boundaries, and boundaries are incredibly important. Now, think about how important the Jewish sages feel about the words we speak. There are three cardinal sins, right? There's idol worship, there's bloodshed, and then there's illicit sexual relations. Those are the three cardinal sins. And the Jewish sages say this, that all three of them wrapped together is the equivalent to an evil tongue, to speaking evil words, to using our words for evil purposes. That that's how bad, like an evil tongue to the Jewish sages, they say, it is as if you are denying the very existence of God when you speak evil words. Why? Why would they say that? Why is that so important? In the ancients, the ancients, right? In the biblical days, the ancients would worship things of power. They worship the sun. It's powerful. They worship lightning. It's powerful. They worship the ocean. It's powerful. But the Bible does not worship power because power in the Bible is not holy. What is holy? Words. Words are holy in the Bible. That means we have to be very careful about how we use words. The words we're allowing 
to come into our life and the words we're speaking from our life. We have to be very careful about the words that come off of our lips because in the Bible, words are holy. Elijah. In a very important scene in the Bible, Elijah is tired. He's worn out and he's in a cave on Mount Horeb. And God comes to him and says, God's going to appear to Elijah. God says, go down at the, stand at the mouth of the cave. And then all of a sudden, there's this mighty act of power. There's wind so strong. It's like a tornado and rocks are just flying everywhere. And then it says, God wasn't in the powerful wind. And then there was an earthquake and everything was shaking. God wasn't in the powerful earthquake. And then there's fire. God wasn't in the fire. And then there was a whisper. And God was there because God's in words. Because in the Bible, words are holy. God shows up. Proverbs says, Life and death are in the power of the tongue. The psalmist writes, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. The words off of our lips, words are holy. But I want to read a passage to you because I think, wow, this really brings it home. Isaiah chapter 6. In one of the most important scenes of this incredibly important book of Isaiah, Isaiah has an encounter with God in Isaiah 6. This is what it says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. Why are you ruined, Isaiah? For I am a man of unclean lips. When Isaiah gets in the presence of God, what's the first thing he thinks of? His words are unholy. His words, what is coming off of his lips is unholy. I'm a man of unclean lips. And what kind of people do you live amongst, Isaiah? What's their problem? I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. What's the answer to all this, Isaiah? Verse number six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar of God. The answer is the burning away, the purification of his words from an altar right out of the very temple of Almighty God. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has been taken away and your sins have been atoned for because of his words. Verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. So when was Isaiah finally ready to go forth in the name of the Lord? When he had his words, when he had his lips cleansed, when it was burned, right? Like exercising, we burn out the toxins. When he had a holy God touch him and his words were transformed. God creates the universe with his words. The first gift that he gives to humanity is the gift of words. Adam names the animals and we create, as God creates the universe, we create a social universe with our very words. Now, I think that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, man, he just he just puts this so good. I want to read you what he has to say about this. How can finite human beings be connected to an infinite God? How can they be connected to one another? 
How can there be cooperation, collaboration, collective action, families, communities, and a nation without the use, without the coercive use of power? How can we form relationships of trust? How can we redeem the human person from his or her solitude? How can we create collective liberty such that my freedom is not bought at the cost of yours? The answer is through words. Please listen to that. Because in the Bible, words are holy. And we must be very, very careful how we are using our words, the words we're taking in and the words that we're giving out. Now, I want to get very, very specific here in conclusion specifically what type of words. Now, if you were to ask me that question, here's the first thing that I would say. Here's the first words that would come off my lips. Loving words. Of course, that's what we need. We need loving words, John. I just got to speak loving words. I should think about, I should think about songs. How many great songs that talk about love. Now, as a matter of fact, I would like to invite you right now to throw these answers in the chat. I'm going to, I'm going to like give some songs that say love. I'm going to give a little short. And you tell me who you think actually is the artist behind this. Matter of fact, this, if you think you win this, if you think that you like got it quicker than everybody else, you just email Derek, Derek dot 80 at trygrace.org. And you tell him, Hey, Derek, I think I won. And maybe Derek will give you a big surprise, but I'd love for you to throw these in the chat right now. All right. So who's saying all you need is love? Who's saying that all you need is love? Who did that? All right. Here's the second one. I will always love you. That is so hard for me to say that without actually singing, but I'm a terrible singer, so actually it's easy for me to not. Who said that? I will always love you. All right, number three, who sang about the power of love? Who did that? And then finally, the greatest love song of all time. Hint, Derek loves one of the singers in this song. Who sang endless love? All right, if you said the Beatles and Whitney Houston and Huey Lewis and Lionel Richie and Diana Ross, then you got them all right. And I hope you threw those in the chat. And just contact Derek. Maybe he'll have a special prize for you, right? Just email him. All right, here's what I want to say about love. And this might seem shocking, but love is not enough. No, it's not. Love is not enough. Everybody, I want you to think about this. 11 times the word love is used in Genesis. 11 times. And every single time the word love is used in Genesis, it creates conflict. It creates a problem. You know why? Because love is particular. It's partial. It chooses or favors one person over the other. We read that Isaac loved his son Esau, but his wife Rebekah loved Jacob. And then we read that Jacob loved Rachel, not his other wife, Leah. Just think about the pain involved. Our heart goes out to Leah. It's very painful to think about that. And then Jacob, he's got a whole mess of sons. But who does he love? He loves Joseph. And what happened with that? All the other brothers hated Joseph for it. Matter of fact, they beat him up and they threw him down a well and they, they sold him into slavery. Every single time love is used in the book of Genesis, it creates conflict and pain and suffering as a result of that. Because love is partial. Look, I've gotten okay with this. and I've said this many times, all right? My wife's beloved dog, Butterscotch. If our house was on fire and I'm in the house and Butterscotch is in the house and my wife could only save one of us, 
You're not going to be seeing Pastor John around much anymore. And that hurts me so deeply. But you know what? I've gotten okay with that. Love is partial. Love is partial. It favors one over the other. And that's why love is not enough. Because love can create conflict. And it does every single time in Genesis. Love is partial. Justice, though. Justice is impartial. Justice calls balls and strikes no matter who's pitching. Because justice is just justice. There are two main names for God in Hebrew. One highlights the fact that God is loving. One highlights the fact that God is just. Love without justice is unfair. Justice without love is harsh. Love alone, everybody, will not build a strong family. It won't build a strong friendship. It won't build a strong church, a strong community, or a strong nation. You need both love and justice. Those are holy words because God is loving and God is just. You've got to have both. Holy words are loving words and just words together. Not one, not the other, both. Jesus Christ came full of grace and truth, love and justice. We have to have both of those words. Now, I want to end with a story about Abraham, his wife, Sarah, Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, Hagar's son, Ishmael, and then Abraham and Sarah's uh, child, Isaac. Very well-known story that is in the Bible. All right, so Abraham and Sarah, they want to have a child. They couldn't have a child. So finally, Sarah does something very common in her day. She brings her handmaid to Abraham and says, have a child with her. So Abraham and Hagar get together. She gets pregnant. She's pregnant with Ishmael. And when she gets pregnant, all of a sudden she notices that Hagar is not acting the same way before. It's like, now they're rivals. Hagar and Sarah are rivals. And so Sarah gets really mad. And she starts mistreating her and Hagar runs away, but eventually she comes back and then eventually she has Ishmael and Abraham's really attached to Ishmael. Like he really, he really is connected to Ishmael. He even says to God, can't you just let the blessing go flow through Ishmael? Well, finally, Sarah can't take it. She is so upset because her rival Hagar is there and she says, send, she says to Abraham, send her away. Now look, the loving thing is to send Hagar away. That's the loving, it's not the just thing, but it's the loving thing to do. I mean, what wife wouldn't want their rival sent away? What wife would not say, you know, I don't want a rival in my house. Get rid of her. And so Abraham does it, sends her away. And now picture this, Hagar is out and she's in the wilderness and she's with Ishmael and she's thinking they're out in the desert and and Ishmael's getting ready to die. And she has this encounter with God and God says, look, 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 it's going to be okay. She shows, uh, God shows Hagar, here's some water and Ishmael's going to grow up and he's going to become a mighty nation. It's going to be okay. And then Hagar says this back to God. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. I want to stop right there because I know at least one person right now, you really need to hear that, that God wanted me to read that verse today because of you, because you're wondering, does God see you? Does he even see you? Does God hear you? And God wants you to know that God sees you. He sees your situation. He hears your prayers. He sees the tears and the cries. God sees you. Hagar and Ishmael were in a 
terrible place. If you read the scripture and your heart goes out to Hagar and Ishmael, then you're reading the scripture correctly. Hagar and Ishmael meant everything to God. They are very important, very important. And if your heart goes out to them, then you're reading this correctly. Finally, verse 14 says, that is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Now, there is something that just seems unresolved here with the fact Abraham and Sarah sending her away, loving thing to do, unjust thing to do, clearly the unjust thing. And there's something that seems incredibly unresolved here. Now, we read later that Sarah dies. And when Sarah dies, there's a number of things that happen. First of all, Sarah dies and Abraham sends Eleazar, his servant, back to where Abraham had come from and says, you need to find my son Isaac a wife. Now he finds a wife and her name is Rebecca and he is bringing her back. And we're told that when Eleazar comes back with Rebecca, we read this about where Isaac is coming from. And I want to read this to you. It says, now Isaac, Genesis 24. Now Isaac had come from Beer Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. That is the place of Hagar and Ishmael. What was he doing there? Why was he there? That's a question. Here's another question. We read after this, Abraham marries again. You think about all the time that he was married to Sarah and he couldn't have any kids. He gets married to somebody out of the blue named Keturah and they have six sons. What in the world? Genesis is a very purposeful book. It just doesn't like throw things out of left field on us. Who is Keturah and how did all of a sudden they have six sons together? And then finally, everybody, when Abraham dies, we see Isaac and Ishmael together. Now, they had been estranged for so many years. How did all this happen? How did this marriage to Keturah take place and the six other sons take place? And why was Isaac in the place of Hagar and Ishmael when Rebekah arrives for their wedding? What's going on here? Well, here's what the Jewish sages say. They say that something was unresolved, that justice needed to be done. And until justice was done, that things could not end. And so there is resolving happening. And they believe Keturah is, Keturah means fragrant incense. That Keturah is actually Hagar, the place of Beer Lahai Roy. That's where Hagar was. And that's why Isaac had been there. He had gone there to bring reconciliation between Hagar and his father, Abraham. And that is why you see Isaac and Ishmael, who had been estranged for so many years, now standing together as brothers, together unified at the burial of their father, Abraham. There is a resolve that needs to happen. It happens through love and it happens through justice. Our words are holy and we need to speak words. Words that are holy that reflect both the love of God and the justice of God together. I want you to think about that. I want you to ask God to help you to honor God with holy words, holy words from our lips, just like Isaiah, that we might detox our lives and detox our world. And it will never, ever, ever happen until we see words as being holy and that we're careful with our words and we're careful to speak words that are both loving and just. That is why Leviticus is the detox book of the Bible that has the power to change our lives, the power 
of biblical thinking. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for your amazing word that is filled with these grand and great ideas that have the power to change our lives and change our world. God, help us to respect words and to know that in your word, words are holy. Help us not to desecrate them, Father. In Christ's holy name, amen.